Sound suppressor water now 15. flowing under the ML. And here we go. Ten. Hydrogen burnoff igniters initiated. Seven, six, five, four stage engine start. Three, two, one. Boosters in ignition. And liftoff of Artemis One. We rise together back to the moon and beyond. Hi, I'm Zach, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Craig and Pam. In the opening clip, we heard one of NASA's latest ventures into space, the launch of Artemis One, an uncrewed test flight. As was stated by the announcer during the launch, quote, we rise together, back to the moon and beyond. The ongoing Artemis program seeks to reestablish a human presence on the moon for the first time since 1972, and eventually for the first time on Mars. The Soviet Union made multiple attempts in the 1960s to reach the Red Planet, and NASA soon followed with its Mariner 3 spacecraft. But according to Space.com, none of these early attempts even got close to the planet. Since that time, the United States has successfully landed six rover vehicles on Mars, including the first in 1997, Sojourner, and the two most recent explorations, Curiosity in 2012 and Perseverance in 2021. As the organization seeks to safely land humans on Mars for the first time, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center's Dr. Paul Mahaffey discusses the objective of the Curiosity rover, which is still in operation after more than 11 years of service. Let's listen. But let me just set a little bit of the context. It was kind of uh, August 2012, more than five years ago, we came barreling into Mars, and uh, there was that exciting seven minutes of terror, and we landed safely on the sur surface thanks to the great engineering uh, uh, team at JPL that, that got us there. Uh, but the objective of the mission really was to explore a habitable environment on Mars and right off the bat, we just found incredible things. We found clays that were formed by water. The rover Curiosity is just extremely capable. Habitable environments for humans and the presence of life on Mars are no longer dreams. They're reality. After the break, we'll hear from Dr. Jennifer Stern, planetary scientist at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Dr. Stern served on NASA's science team for the Curiosity rover and is also a team member of the Sample Analysis at Mars, or SAM, instrument suite, one of the 10 instruments on Curiosity, which uses mass and laser spectrometry to measure the chemical composition of the atmosphere and surface of Mars. So stick around for what promises to be a discussion that will be out of this world. We'll be right back, and then head to infinity and beyond. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Joining us today is Dr. Jennifer Stern, planetary scientist at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in nearby Greenbelt, Maryland. Uh, Jen, for our listeners, could you please expand on your background and your role at NASA? Sure. Um, like you said, uh, I'm at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. I am um, a planetary scientist, and my, special, my specialty is the geochemistry of Mars and other planetary bodies. Um, the group I work with develops instruments called mass spectrometers. 
what they do is they measure molecules, the mass of molecules, in order to identify them. And we use these mass spectrometers um, to study the composition of the atmosphere of other planets and then also the, the rocks or regoliths uh, of other planets. Um, in addition to that, I, I support uh, all of that work that our group does by laboratory work, um, developing instrumentation, and uh, analyzing samples that are in some way like Mars or another planet. And uh, sometimes I actually get to go to uh, those places in the field that are Mars-like in some way, like Hawaii or parts of Greenland, and I get to study those environments and collect those samples to bring them back to the lab. Wow. That sounds like a very engaging, exciting uh, job. And so um, I know it's difficult in a nutshell, but in thinking about the different technologies and the instruments that have historically uh, made the travel mission to Mars, could you talk about uh, Curiosity and how you were involved in it and what you learned as a result of it? Sure. Um, so I've been involved in some way with Curiosity missions since 2008, which is when I joined the team at Goddard um, that was building this instrument, this mass spec called Sample Analysis at Mars, and we, we call it SAM for short. Um, so this is an instrument in the belly of the rover, and it measures, uh, it will heat up rocks and look at um, what gases come off and analyze them with a mass spectrometer and then um, identify them. So we can tell, you know, CO2, um, different organic molecules, different, um, just all sorts of things. We can tell uh, whether there are organics in the rocks and whether... Um, the rocks contain sulfur, all those sorts of things. Um, we also can measure the atmosphere in the same way. And so uh, that building and developing and testing, all of that takes a long time. And when I joined my group, it was sort of at the tail end of that part of the, the mission development. Um, and then we, we launched. I went down to the launch. I got to see the launch of Curiosity, which was super exciting. And then when it landed um, at like 1 a.m. Um, on East Coast time, I was actually at NASA Goddard doing some uh, outreach um, about, uh, about the landing. Um, and then after that, for 90 days, I wasn't there the whole 90 days, but the, the whole team, the whole mission team was at Jet Propulsion Lab um, living on Mars time and basically kicking the tires of the instruments and the rover itself doing some of the very first measurements. And so I would go out there for two or three weeks at a time um, and work with that team living on Mars time. Um, since then, over the course of the mission, which now we've been, we've been operational for over 10 years, which is awesome, um, we have measured our instrument, the sample analysis at Mars instrument, has measured probably over 20 samples, 20 solid samples, and much more atmosphere. Um, and we've learned a whole lot. Uh, just from those samples, and also from all of the other information the, the rest of the instruments on the rover tell us. Um, I, it would take all day to talk, tell you everything, but I'll, I'll pick three high points that I think are the most interesting. Um, we learned that there's actually organic carbon in the rock. Um, and this organic carbon is, this is, you know, carbon that is bonded, carbon-carbon, carbon-hydrogen bonds. Um, organics can be made in many different ways, the, the planet itself, Mars, can make um, potentially make organic molecules uh, abiotically uh, just through the chemistry that happens in the rocks themselves um, in the mantle. Um, Mars can also get organics from 
interplanetary dust particles and meteorites and everything falling into Mars, just like stuff falls into Earth, stuff falls into Mars too. And those those things bring um, organic molecules. Um, of course, organics are of such interest because some specific organics are associated with life. Uh, we certainly haven't seen the specific, very specific organic uh, that would indicate life, but we have seen, um, we've been able to, to quantify the carbon in the rocks and also figure out what kinds of carbon, what kind of molecules we've seen. Um, the second thing that I'll highlight is the detection of fixed nitrogen on Mars, and uh, that was work I was closely involved in. And the reason this is important um, is because nitrogen uh, in, in, in our atmosphere, for example, um, it requires it requires breaking that the bond between the two nitrogen molecules to, to use it uh, biologically. And so on Earth, most of that is done by biology. On Mars, um, that is done abiotically in the atmosphere. Uh, but the fact that that's happening, the fact that, that, yeah, that you have fixed nitrogen uh, means that it's chemically available, was life, were life to be there. Um, for context, uh, this fixed nitrogen is nitrate, and that is the form of nitrogen that you find in fertilizer uh, because it is so biologically and chemically available. Um, and then the last one would be uh, methane. So there's this big uh, controversy over whether there was methane on Mars uh, from the orbital detections and the telescopic detections. But um, we've been able to, on the surface, actually measure the low amounts of methane um, that are coming and going in the atmosphere. We don't know why uh, or what's causing that. Methane is really interesting because at least on Earth, like 90 to 95% of methane is from life, from breaking down of, of organics and from life. Um, in, in this case, uh, there are geological and atmospheric processes that can make it, um, but it's really interesting that we see it and that we also see it very in a, in a seasonal way that we, we think it actually cycles. So those are sort of my, my top three, um, but we've learned so much over the last 10 years and, and we're, we're still learning. It sounds like you have a fantastic job. And I have to say, I'm, I'm a bit envious of just how much information you've been able to gather uh, just in those short 10 years. But there's something you said just a little bit ago that piqued my interest, that you said that Mars is like parts of Hawaii and Greenland. And now you've just said that there's similar matter that we have in our fertilizer here that is present on Mars. So considering that and considering the 20 you know, solid samples that you mentioned that Curiosity has gotten, uh, can you just briefly compare Earth and Mars? Sure, sure. Um, well, that, that similarity, the, specifically, I'll first I'll address the Hawaii and Greenland. So Mars is basically all basalt, basaltic rock, and that is the same kind of rock that is, is what is uh, erupting in Hawaii um, and makes up the Hawaiian, the Hawaiian, um, the Hawaiian islands. And so um, the geology is very similar on Mars to different places on Earth. Um, sort of bigger picture, Mars is half the size of Earth. And this is important to consider because, um, because of this, it cooled faster than Earth, Earth after planetary accretion. So after the Big Bang, when all of the, the stuff was kind of coming together to form the planet, um, Earth cooled more slowly, and in fact, we still on Earth have this liquid um, nickel-iron outer core uh, of inside the Earth, and that's what gives us our magnetic field. Um, Mars, because it's half the size of Earth, cooled faster and doesn't have that liquid uh, molten center anymore. 
Um, I mean, we're not sure if it ever did, but it certainly we don't think it does now. Um, and so the reason this is important is because our magnetic field is what protects our atmosphere from being chipped away at by solar wind, which is basically radiation that comes off the sun and eats away at our, our atmosphere. Um, we're protected because we have a magnetic field, but because Mars cooled so quickly and no longer has a magnetic, magnetic field, um, it also has lost much of its atmosphere. So the belief is that uh, long ago, there was an atmosphere on Mars. Um, and when there was an atmosphere that supported liquid water on the surface. But then over time, some the exact timing is people aren't sure about it, but sort of way back, you know, like three, three and a half billion years ago, um, the atmosphere of Mars was lost to space. And that is, and then with it, uh, the ability to have liquid water on the surface and thus the ability to have a habitable environment. So Mars' atmosphere is like seven to 10 millibar um, and our atmosphere is a thousand millibar. So, um, so yeah, I guess that's a hundred. Um, so the other thing about Mars' atmosphere is that it's made completely of CO2. What, what air is there is CO2, which is uh, not breathable. And Earth, uh, on Earth, we have uh, mostly nitrogen with about 20% oxygen. Um, the other sort of big picture thing is that Mars is very cold. It's, I think the average is sort of minus 80 Fahrenheit. And on Earth, um, of course, we have fluctuations, but we're much, in general, I think the average temperature is much warmer around, I think, plus 50s or something like that. Um, and that's because we, we're closer to the sun. Earth is closer to the sun than Mars. And because we have an atmosphere, we do have uh, a greenhouse effect, which keeps us warm. Now, you know, of course, we don't want to get too warm, and that's, that's a huge problem globally. But if we had no greenhouse uh, effect, then we would be a lot colder. So, Jen, you'll have to forgive my very basic understanding of this, and my knowledge of this is probably akin to some of the middle school students who are listening in, but my understanding is that Percy, the, the 2020 Mars Perseverance rover, um, is the next generation of Curiosity, and if that's correct, can you talk about goals for the, uh, for the rover and anything you've been excited about um, with, the, with the rollout of that? Perseverance is very similar in some ways to Curiosity. It's got the same chassis. It's built on that, that same architecture. Um, the instrument payload is different, and a big part of that instrument payload is devoted to collecting cores, um, which will uh, be cached and saved for a later sample return mission, which will come pick up the samples and bring them back to Earth where they can be analyzed by state-of-the-art techniques um, that we simply can't send to Mars. So that's super exciting. Um, and they've collected, I think, 15 cores out of something like 38. Um, the, the goals of Perseverance are also very similar in some ways to Curiosity. They're to, to characterize the climate and geology of Mars, to look for habitable environments on Mars, it past habitable environments, and to prepare for human exploration. Um, because one of the instruments that Perseverance carries is better at actually detecting life signatures, um, life detection is one, also one of the goals of Perseverance, that if there is life in that part uh, of Mars where they are, that, that Perseverance should be able to detect it with, with the instrument, uh, specific instrument it has uh, on board called Sherlock. The two rovers uh, make, still make similar measurements, and so we're very excited on the Curiosity team when we hear about, for example, 
um, detections of organics and rocks by, by um, perseverance at Jezero. Um, so even if we don't, we can't compare some of the data one to one, we're learning about similar environments, Jezero and Gale, where Curiosity uh, is at Gale Crater and Percy is at Jezero Crater. And both of these are very habitable environments and once held uh, liquid water and deltas. So studying two different environments like that with two different um, rovers, you can definitely relate information back and forth and learn from each other. So considering the data that you talked about that has been collected, the samples that have been collected, and uh, whether or not there has been life on Mars or is life on Mars, um, but just in thinking about our natural curiosity and uh, that of young people who will be listening, is it possible to uh, speak about whether we will ever be able to colonize uh, that planet? So um, NASA has no plans for permanent settlements on Mars. Um, The amount of resources required to do that are just enormous. Um, The air is unbreathable. And uh, while we do think that there are subsurface uh, sort of permafrost ice deposits, um, there's no way to know if that's safe water to drink. Um, There's other things such as food, et cetera. Uh, It takes nine and a half months to get uh, to Mars, and that's just for what we sent. Um, it's, it's very difficult to land on Mars. There, there are a lot of things that make it very impractical. Imp- there are a lot of things that make it very impractical to think about a permanent settlement on Mars. And also, um, I don't think it would be very desirable. Um, near term, NASA's focus is sending astronauts back to the moon and building the infrastructure at the moon um, in order to stage long-term missions uh, for Mars. Because we, you know, we still are planning to send people to Mars, just not uh, for long-term settlements. And so at the moon, um, we'll be able to learn how to live away from Earth. The moon is about three days away by spacecraft um, from Earth, whereas Mars is, you know, months away. Um, at the moon, we also will be having, we have a, plans for a lunar gateway, which is an outpost that will be orbiting the moon. Um, So astronauts will go there and also to the lunar surface. Uh, And I think the idea is to have um, a more permanent or extended presence on the moon um, with no no real plans for such a thing on Mars. Again, because um, the amount of fuel it takes to get all of the stuff that you need to live on Mars to Mars before you could ever be self-sufficient, it's just it's astronomical. and it's not really practical. Well, I'm thinking about the practicality of short and long-term goals. What would be your message to students, both those who might be interested in being those one of the first to colonize the moon or those that might not be interested in science and space? So for anybody interested in, in, uh, in anything, I mean, for science, folks interested in science, get, you know, get those basic math and science courses out of the way even if you don't like them or you don't feel like you're good at them. And I mean, there, there's certainly analogs in other fields as well. There's sort of the basic foundational courses that aren't always the most fun or interesting, but that give you the foundation for what you want to do later. Um, my path to where I am now started when I was young and loved being outside skiing and hiking and, and in the mountains, wondering how mountains formed and why like the Rockies were so much bigger than the Appalachian Mountains. Um, and so 
so that that is what drove me is interest in the natural world and curiosity about the natural world. So tuning into your curiosity about whether it's the human body, space, the earth, um, or anything, just focusing in on that curiosity um, and following that, I think, is really important. Uh, and sometimes you have to go through the less fun stuff to get there to put in the work. But eventually, you know, stay interested in in what you're passionate about and you will get there. Um, also, what you're curious about is going to change over time. And that's okay. In fact, that's what makes life interesting. Um, and this applies to any field. Uh, just that I think being being in middle school, high school, and even college, you're, you're still building that foundation and not necessarily able to get to some of the, the fun stuff. Um, but you will, you will get there and just remembering to keep your excitement and your passion um, focused on that thing that you're curious about. Jen, we really appreciate your time today. And as we begin to wrap up our call, are there any online resources that you'd like to share with our listeners to learn more about your work and the programs at NASA? Sure. Um, you can go to mars.nasa.gov to learn all about Mars and all of the missions that are active and um, the ones from the past. Um, you can also learn a bit about the Mars sample return there. And then you can go to nasa.gov and right on the front page of nasa.gov is there's a lot of information about Artemis and going back to the moon and how that, how that going back to the moon is a step towards uh, getting to Mars. It's amazing. Yeah, I just because I was checking that out and I just went down the rabbit hole of really cool resources you have, even for teachers, ready to go ideas and lessons for just to continue to pique uh, children's curiosity. So thanks so much for sharing all that. As a team of former classroom teachers, we value every opportunity to learn and to explore that curiosity that Dr. Stern talked about. And that is certainly true for us here at C-SPAN. We like to say that whether you are a political junkie, a history buff, or a nonfiction book lover, you're sure to find a topic of interest to you on our networks and in our vast archive of programs in our video library. You never know where you'll find inspiration to explore something new and challenge yourself and expand your horizons, and that is how we discovered Dr. Stern. I attended a presentation she was giving on the topic of Mars, and with all the milestones that have occurred in the last few years, we thought we would focus this episode on the exploration of space. So, why Mars? As we continue to highlight some of our coverage of space programs, let's listen to University of Southampton Associate Professor Jessica Whiteside talk about our fascination with the planet and why it's valuable for us to study it today. So can you help uh, people understand why the study of life on Mars or study of Mars itself is valuable to humankind? This is a fantastic question. So ever since Galileo looked through a telescope and saw Mars, it has fascinated the public. Um, it has fascinated people in terms of if there's life outside of Earth and within our solar system. Now, it's not just a philosophical or existential question, are we alone in the atmosphere? But there are very important implications if we do find life on Mars. One of them is that we would then have follow-up questions in terms of did life originate first on Earth? or on Mars, because if life is the same age on both planets, there are implications that possibly all life on Earth actually came from Mars, that is that Earthlings are actually Martians, and vice versa. It could mean that if there was life on Mars 3.7 billion years ago, when it was a blue world with all of that water, 
then it, there was life on Earth at the same time that possibly that life on Mars came from Earth. And the way that would work is we know from this from um, our own landscape that there are several instances when Martian meteorites have smashed into our planet, leaving evidence behind, leaving those actual rocks. So there could be transport of life between the two planets. It's all very fascinating. There are endless questions um, in terms of what it means in, for life on Mars, life on Earth at the same time, and that interplanetary um, confluence uh, fertilization between the two planets. This clip sparked an interest for me to dig a little deeper into the question of life on Mars and its relationship to Earth, and I think using it with students can ignite an interest for them as well. It could serve as a springboard to a conversation about what living things need to survive as students consider their own communities and what elements they need to thrive. They could also research images to compare the landscape of both Earth and Mars, as Dr. Stern discussed, and create a poster reflecting those similarities and differences or investigating the different types of equipment or instruments that have been used to collect data from Mars offer students another area of interest to explore technology. There are so many different directions you can go in to aspire students who will experience advancements in space and travel in their lifetimes. And while NASA has served as the governmental arm of space exploration for the United States for quite some time, since the aftermath of the Soviet Union's launch of the first artificial Earth satellite Sputnik 1, Increased interest in the private sector has forever changed the future trajectory of space science, engineering, and discovery. John Logsdon of George Washington University's Space Policy Institute discusses the impact of the work of business leaders like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Richard Branson. And Musk's ambition, and eventually Bezos, not so much uh, 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 Branson, is, is to move large numbers of people into space, into deep space. Elon's stated goal is to establish a million-person city uh, on Mars. Uh, and Bezos' stated goal is to move heavy industry and uh, into uh, outer space, into deep space, and have uh, thousands of people working in space. From establishing cities to building heavy industry in space, the next generation of scientists, engineers, business leaders, and politicians will have plenty of questions to consider. But how can we best support our youth, our future leaders, now? Well, looking through the lens as the former teachers that we three each are, we create free content on our C-SPAN Classroom website for educators to use with their students. And those resources that we develop pull from a wide variety of our television programs, offering differing viewpoints on any given topic. We frame those resources with the idea that students will hear diverse perspectives on the topics and issues that you are showing to them so that they can listen to the information that is being presented in our clips and hopefully arrive at their own conclusions. So we've developed a variety of resources that focus on everything from space travel to engineering and the technologies employed in lifting rockets from the Earth and even bureaucratic considerations like policies and funding for all of the various space-related programs. Exposing your students to these ideas and concepts may prove to be the spark that helps them to discover their own interests, and we would encourage anyone interested to explore NASA's youth and community activities and opportunities on the web. As we wrap up this episode, let's listen to planetary chief scientist Nancy Chabot recall how she too was inspired during her youth to pursue a career in space science. I think as a kid, I was really just taken by uh, those visions of different worlds. Um, I really loved that there was worlds with two suns or worlds made of 
ice or worlds where people lived in clouds and and all of these sorts of things. And I think that that just uh, that made me. And then you look around and there's so much about our own solar system that we have yet to discover and just these fundamental things that we're doing for the first time. And so it's really sort of a childhood dream come true. New York Times science journalist John Noble Wilford once said, quote, Mars tugs at the human imagination like no other planet. With a force mightier than gravity, it attracts the eye to the shimmering red presence in the clear night sky. Once again, we'd like to thank Dr. Jennifer Stern of the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center for being part of the discussion today and offering her expertise on Mars and the future of space exploration to the moon and the red planet. You'll find all the resources that we highlighted in this episode and more on our featured resources page at www.cspan.org classroom. And if you'd ever like to connect with our team to learn more about what we have to offer to teachers and students, please email us anytime at educate at cspan.org. And that's it for this week. Please remember to like and follow our podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss our next episode. Until then, thank you for joining us.